Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Clean and protect your firearms with Riptide Armory. Riptide, a veteran-founded business. It's dedicated to producing American-made cleaning chemicals and also dedicated to creating American jobs. And that commitment is embodied in every product that's bottled, labeled, and shipped from their Arvada, Colorado facility. Safe for all firearm types and surfaces. Embrace the power of American ingenuity and protect your firearms with the best. Visit RiptideArmory.com. What's the best way to fish like a local? What if you could book a trip with an experienced local guide with the click of a button? Now you can with Fishing Booker. Now anyone can access enjoyable fishing experiences anywhere. Take the legwork out of setting up that trip and explore more than 30,000 fishing experiences at your fingertips. Just go to fishingbooker.com to get started and book your trip with a local guide. That's fishingbooker.com. Fishing Booker. Fish like a local. Oh, hey, it's Hunting Collective. Welcome to episode number 82 here in snowy Bozeman, Montana, eh, Phil? Uh, yeah, the weather the weather has changed. It's winter. Yeah, skipped fall like we usually do every, every year. Screw here. it. Yeah, it's skipped fall. Nope, fall lasts about two days. We don't need fall. But we got a great episode for you. Well, great would be a loaded term. It's an interesting episode. We, um, we have our editor-in-chief here at Media Editor, Anthony Nakata, on. And we're going to talk a little bit about you know editorial decisions, how you make a decision to run a podcast or not run a podcast, what you want to do to it, whether to cut it up. And that's because we had a very interesting, uh, and I would say contentious interview with Barry Gilbert. Barry Gilbert is the author of a book called One of Us. He was attacked by a grizzly bear in 1977 in Yellowstone. And since then, he's become a bear advocate. Uh, he's also a biologist and a teacher. So... We went into the interview with a lot of interesting things to talk about. We came out of it with a lot of interesting sound bites. And so you're going to hear all that coming up. But before we get to that, talk about our friends at Yeti. Yeti was nice enough recently to send me, uh, not even really send me, they sent my son James a Rambler Junior 12-ounce kids bottle. It's got his name on it. Super cool, Phil. That's awesome. Your kids are probably jealous. Yes, I I told them all about it. <laughs> they were very upset. They started crying. I will pull some strings to help them Thank out. Thank you so much. Maybe even get Mango, your dog. Oh, a personalized Yeti uh, little rambler? Yeah. That'd well, be... maybe you should get a dog bowl or a dog bed. They also have those. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's legit over there. Uh, the Rambler Junior Kids Bottle, for one thing, as a small child, it's very hefty. Like to swing it. You could really hurt another child. Now that I think, I, I think it comes with pros and cons. Cause, pros and cons. Because you know they're going to drop it a lot. It's, it's built sturdy. for the wild. Yes. Or built for the child. I, made, I just <laughs> made that up. For childs and wilds. <laughs> so it's 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 a great product. And he loves it. He carries it around. But to to swing it really could. Um, so just a, just a warning. Just okay. Let, <laughs> once you get yours filled, don't let anybody whack uh, your kid with it. Uh, it's a great product, though. Yeti.com. <laughs> Yeti.com. 
Oh, and uh, First Light. we got to talk about them. If you go to firstlight.com right now, you're going to see the mid-season rut tree stand set up from our boy Taylor Chamberlain. He's got his whole system there. And another thing you ought to do, our, my good buddy Mark Healy and our, our very good buddy Ryan Callahan are in a film called Pressure. If you don't know about Mark Healy, he's a world-class surfer, spear fisherman, everything Hawaii. Um, and he learns about the difference between hiking on mountains and swimming in the water in this film. So you're going to want to go to firstlight.com, check out those couple of things. You're going to enjoy it. And one more thing, Phil. The inbox is flooding with not-so-sharp moments. Not-so-sharp. unbelievable. I That's can't good. keep up. A lot of them are getting tagged as spam, but I'm saving those. Don't worry. Good. So we got lots of them. They, Dozens, they, they, hundreds. They, they want to get their hands on a work sharp field sharpener. A work sharp field sharpener. Yes. Just so you know, if you write into THC at TheMediator.com, we told you this last week, but if you forgot, you write in your best not-so-sharp moment, your best dumb story from some time outside or in, so we don't really care where you were. Use your best pros, and if we select you, Workshop's going to send you a field sharpener right to your house. Yes. Entertaining, concise. Yes. Just a you know, story you tell your friends at a bar or something. Not too short, not too long. Yep. Right, Phil? Yep. All right. Let's get going. Episode number 82. Let's go. I guess I grew up on an older road. A pedal to the metal always did what I told. Till I found out that my brand new clothes came secondhand from the rich kids next door. And I grew up fast, I guess I grew up mean. There's a thousand things inside my head I wish I ain't seen. And now I just wander through a real bad dream. Or feeling like I'm coming apart at the seams. But thank you, Jack Daniels. Oh, number seven. Hey, everybody. It's Honey Collector. Episode 82, which you know by now. And we're here with Anthony Dakota. Hey, man. Hey, Ben. What's going down? Uh, I'm just trying to stay warm in this beautiful fall weather. <laughs> yeah, man, it's cold. It's cold in this in the uh, podcast studio. And we're we're tr- we're going to try. We're going to attempt to introduce an interview that you've listened to, that I've listened to, that Phil was a part of. Um, I would say it's. How do you describe? How would you describe it, Anthony? Well. Things escalated quickly, put it that way. <laughs> yeah, things, um, things got hot. Things got hot, and um, it didn't It didn't turn into as much of a dialogue as I think that we had all hoped. Yes. So let me introduce our character here, Barry K. Gilbert. And Barry is a lot of things. Uh, he's a bear advocate. He's a wildlife biologist. Um, but most notably, he was attacked by a grizzly bear in 1977 in Yellowstone National Park. The grizzly bear, as you'll hear, um, removed parts of his face, scalped him, um, tore out one of his eyes, some very gnarly, very gnarly story that that he doesn't really like to tell all that much, and I'm not real surprised. He actually teared up when we first started talking about it. And so, you know, some decades later, he's still obviously uh, following that tragedy and a, that... He's he's come back from, and so in the years after he has become a bear advocate. He's he's even in the moment, as you'll hear in the story, he tells that he, as he was fighting for his life, he was asking those the rescuers to tell park rangers not to kill the bear 
Yeah, so I would say he was he was kind of there even before the yeah. attack, and the attack, um, you know, was a horrific experience, but it only sort of drove him more, I think. Yeah, so he was born in Kingston, Ontario. He's a PhD in zoology from Duke University. Uh, a lot of a lot of street cred, and has done came to Bozeman to do a bunch of public speaking events, and we were hooked up with him, and wanted to chat with him. And really, the impetus is I think should be obvious for why you'd want to talk to somebody like that. One. He went through a life-changing experience about as gnarly as it possibly gets with wild creatures. So that that story is interesting. His rescue is interesting. We do talk about that in the interview, the way that he was rescued and, and how his, his life was saved by some very brave people. So that's interesting. But like the turn, his turn really into a voice for bears, grizzly bears specifically, um, is interesting. It's just an interesting turn. And he wrote a book called One of Us. That talks about his time with bears. He spent a lot of time around bears. He feels very strongly, as you'll hear soon, about them. And it's interesting from an editorial perspective. You're our editor-in-chief, Anthony. When we, we decide to have people on like this that have divergent views from ours, and he does. I mean, he is, he is I would say, clearly anti-hunting. Yes. Clearly. More so than I thought <laughs> once we right. got him in the room. But I knew that he was at some level against killing bears. But I, that doesn't really bother me. Because I think any conversation in this room can can have a good outcome. So that's what we went into it with. That's the editorial decision you're making there to try to make sure to give this very interesting guy a voice, hear his story, and if possible, you know, work out, come to some sort of conclusion on what he believes about bears, what hunters believe, what the North American model says, uh, what the Endangered Species Act says. Get that all together in a way that is compelling for you guys to listen to. Oh, what's compelling? <laughs> so... I like it's hard for me. I'm not going to go back and re-listen to the interview because it, it just is that contentious. Uh, Barry, about 30 minutes into it, threatened to leave. I uh, talked him down off that ledge, and then I would say from there it got it went off the rails even further than it had uh, to that point. And so, you know, what do you like when I, when I'm thinking about this? When we first got finished recording, I'm thinking, should we run this? You know, and so. Luckily, you're here to help me make that decision. Um, so what's your, what do you think about this? Obviously, we're going to run it, but yeah. like, what's the decision-making process? Well, I, I think, um, as you said, to come in and, and have different people come in here and talk about hunting and wildlife and conservation and, and these kinds of issues, we don't all have to agree. And what's interesting is when you get different perspectives. So, you know, I think this was not exactly what we're hoping with that, right? It does go off the rails. It does get kind of weird. Um, but I think it's useful to listen to, hopefully entertaining, but also useful because um, you get a sense of people who, you know, maybe have different values than we do and see things a different way and how um, it can kind of color, you know, listen, yeah. this guy is experienced. He's knowledgeable. He's a scientist. I, I don't doubt his cred, but clearly his views were, um, his his beliefs were, were colored by his, his personal views, just like ours are. Yeah, and it came across very clear, especially towards the end of the interview when he starts clear. getting into some other stuff. Um, you know, really, what he thought. Yeah, Trump, guns. Yeah, you know, the media, things like that. Right. No, I think it's it it, it illustrates that one thing. I think that's unfortunate here because I think by all intents, coming into this, Barry seems to be you know a sharp guy with a lot of great experience and, and things to impart on folks. 
with divergent views, from, again, from mine. But I think what this ends up showing, what's, what's dangerous here is that when you're so attached to a worldview like he is, I mean, he's attached to this the worldview that bears shouldn't be killed, that we should um, do anything we can to protect bears and their habitat and grow their populations. He, You become so attached to that worldview, it's there, you, you can't see any other points of view or are at some right. level unwilling to to be moved in one direction or the other. I mean, the, I don't think there's any within conservation, especially within wildlife. I don't think there, I don't think you can lean back on any universal truths because old mother nature, the natural world has very few universal truths. But when it comes specifically to like large predators, like grizzly bears, there just isn't. You have to look at every ecosystem and look at every animal. It's hard to just say kill them all or save them all. It's just a tough way to go. Especially, you know, you throw in there human beings' interaction with wildlife and, um, you know, you're not looking at it in a vacuum. You know, there's been development. There's been habitat loss. It can't go um, – you have to factor all those kinds of conflicts in. And, and what you said is true. Like, you know, for someone who has those beliefs, he kept um, – he didn't seem to me that he wanted to be challenged and – you know, he kept saying he did not want to be. Challenged. He did not. So he, he kept calling, saying that you as a journalist, um, as if your role was to just let him say whatever he wanted, yeah. just give him a platform to say whatever he wanted, without you challenging him. And um, you know, you you have been trained as a journalist. We do a lot of journalism here, but that's not exactly what this is either. You no. know, we're, we're it's the hunting collective. We very clearly have certain set of, of beliefs. We just love like white he does. claw. <laughs> we like, you know, we like a nice walk on the beach, yeah. know, whatever. Yeah, it's, you're right. I mean, we have like, and I told him, I said, I'm not, to be honest, I'm not a grizzly bear hunting advocate. I'm not out there on the stump for like, let's, you have to hunt bears or else. But I am a, an advocate of our model of conservation. And we, can, we should be able to talk about that uh, in a way that is not confrontational and is just looking at, hey, here have been the benefits of this model. It's not perfect. As I said to him a few times throughout the interview, uh, he just wasn't having that. No, he didn't He didn't really want to talk about that. He wanted to talk about what he wanted to talk about and not be challenged on his points. That's yeah. that's how I saw it. I'm yeah. Listening and it, to it. Phil, I mean, you were in the room. It like Here's a man that, uh, not you, Phil, but Barry, that came in here. I mean, there was there was... There was clear like anger in the room. His hands were shaking. He slammed his book on the ground on the on the table once. Yeah, and it like, seemingly came came out of nowhere. Yeah, uh, I mean, people will hear it. I mean, I, I think another thing. I think you mentioning Valerius Geis too, which you'll hear in the interview. He has a history with yeah with Val Geis, like a, a seemed seemed to be a personal one, and I think that kind of changed the tone of the uh, conversation as well because um, those two men have differing views. It's true. As well as a personal re- uh, relationship, it sounded like. Yeah, they definitely they had some together. sort of professional interaction, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. But he, he wanted to, you know, when he got angry, he's, Let's, I didn't come here to talk about this. Let's stick to bears. But then the second half of the interview, <laughs> he got into some weird stuff that was far off the topic of and bears. That's where, and that's where, like, be respectful to Barry as I, I can be. Um, and that's where it... it where my decision-making process kicks in, like, do we run this? When mm-hmm. somebody is just flying off the handle about things that aren't germane to anything that we sat down to chat about, and I'm not, these aren't things that I'm just going to fly off the handle about. If I'm going to talk about them, I'm going to be thoughtful, I'm going to be measured, and I'm going to make sure the person sitting in the room with me can contribute to the conversation in yeah. a rational way. 
these are things that, so I'm just not going to jump into those conversations. But for me, and I know a lot of people say this when we run these types of interviews, why would you give this person a platform? Why does they deserve a voice? Why do I have to be exposed to this lines of thinking? But I think the opposite. I think it's important to hear from folks that have these perspectives. Um, we've done it a few times already on the podcast. It has varying results. I mean, I think, yeah. again, this one I think, unfortunately for, for, for Mr. Gilbert and maybe for this conversation even, um, I think, unfortunately, he comes off a little bit like the stereotypical animal rights advocate activist and with someone who who even as a biologist showed a lot of emotion in in his reasoning and and the way that he spoke about bears which is something that I think hunters always charge for for these types of, of uh, folks yeah they're uh, they're so wrapped in these ideologies they can't see past their love of an animal to see actually what it is which is very surprising given the fact that here's a guy who actually has been has been around them and has been attacked by one. Yeah, absolutely. And just what you said, I mean, to to give voice or a platform for that, I think it is important not only for us, but for, for every everyone who cares about these things to listen to that kind of stuff. You know, you hear the 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 comment that, you know, living in an echo chamber, right? If you're only around people who um, say what you think, you're not going to understand the bigger picture and what some threats are. You won't understand, hey, not everybody likes this. And, and this is what I have to do to, to, to get that point across about why these, these activities, why hunting is important, what it means to me. Um, you won't be able to do that if you don't understand or really yeah. hear um, other points of view. Yeah. And I think I would say that same thing to Barry. Like if you're, if you're just going to sit in this place and get angry when somebody challenges you, you're never going to be able to articulate your ideas in a way that's meaningful right um i said about it before it's like taking your ideas to the gym you know strengthen them up because if somebody there sitting across from you that's intelligent thoughtful and can challenge you on some of the even the most basic things that you believe that's when you get to understand really one if you're right <laughs> and if there's any chinks in the old armor and two um if you can really defend the points that you think you can defend. So it's something that, you know, in this, this, on this show where we're really just talking to people that I think is an important one introspection for me, but also for our community, this is a person that, um, doesn't believe what we believe. And it's <laughs> no, very clear in this conversation that he does not no. believe what we believe. And it, it is a shame because I think there were some points that he made that would be worth um, talking about more in depth, but it, it didn't work out that way. It's kind of undercut by a lot of the other stuff. Yeah, I had a decision, and Phil, we talked about this. I had a decision to make somewhere during the conversation um, whether to just to, to, to push him very hard and see exactly. I'd be like, I just didn't know what was going to happen. The dude was pretty fired up. I didn't know if we were, if like he was going to stand up and throw something at me <laughs> if I continued to push him. Well, I think he handled it uh, good at, towards the end when he went off the rails. And like you said, you didn't want to get into a debate about something that had nothing to do with what we're talking about. <laughs> Even though it must have been hard to bite your tongue, you just said, let's get back to bears. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And just in, in the time that we had uh, the animal rights activists on there in Berkeley – it's similar. I mean, you 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 end like, and and let me just say, for point of fact, after we stopped recording, 
Barry Gilbert couldn't have been nicer. Couldn't have been nicer. He, we had the conversation. He complimented my interviewing skills. We talked about some of the paintings in the office. He was asking about who the, who, um, the artists were. And he said he'd give me his card. It was very, <laughs> it was just a nice yeah. interaction before and after. And so there's, there's something, we'll let you all get into it and hear it, but there's something that happened within, in this room, within the conversation that kind of made it go off the rails. Mm-hmm. Way off the rails. <laughs> so for a point of fact, just it's, I don't know what you're going to get out of it other than just to a couple of guys in a room. And it gets heated. Yeah. Um, you hear Ben try to talk somebody out uh, back into the room from <laughs> yeah. walking out. Yeah, just like, don't leave, man. I think we can do something here. Because I, I I, don't think I was fired up during it. Like, confused? Sure. <laughs> Absolutely confused. Um, like, d- dumb, no, you were calm. Dumbfounded? Like, uh, yeah, man. Good. What? <laughs> A lot of that <laughs> happens in there. Um, but again... I think all of these conversations, they can't always go to the script. They're not always going to be what they're expected to be. And there's some learning from each one of them. Um, I'll let you guys figure out what the learning from this one is. Yeah, when you know, uh, tell us. <laughs> yeah, write in. <laughs> write in to So um, I don't think we're going to talk any more about it. Uh, we're not going to have any other. There's a lot going on in the world right now, but I think it's proper to just to prep you for what you're about to hear and then let you experience it. Right, Phil? Uh, yeah, I think, I mean, stick around and, and listen to it. Did we, uh, yeah. I, yeah. Phil has to, Phil has to edit these things uh-huh. and like spend time with them. I, I, have, I have to listen to it again and I'm, uh, I'm kind of stressed out about it. Yeah. What, like, <laughs> describe your stress, stress, Phil. Like what? Well, I, uh, I was talking to Corinne, our podcast producer upstairs yesterday. I'm kind of like a, a cringe phobic person. So if I can feel tension in a room <laughs> or uh, anything like that, I I just get very uh, uncomfortable and tense. And if I have the option to leave the room, I will. And I could not leave the room <laughs> during this interview. You were yeah, <laughs> so I'm just uh, so I mean, but some people are are a fan of that, you know. Uh, so stick around if you want <laughs> to yeah. to to be a part of it. All right, we'll stick around for. Uh, THC's most contentious interview ever with Dr. Barry K. Gilbert. Enjoy. I guess I grew up on an older road a pedal to the metal. Mr. Barry Gilbert, how are you, sir? Very good. Uh, nice to be in Bozeman. Yeah. How are you enjoying your Bozeman time so far? Uh, it's been uh, great. I'm staying up in the mountains east of town and uh, it's a really nice wild country. I'm going to be going down to Yellowstone in a couple of days too, so that'll be good. Can't ever get enough of that country. <laughs> now, exactly. Here. Well, welcome to, to the Meteor Studios and, and to the Hunting Collective. Thanks for coming and really appreciate your time. Uh, I don't think – I would guess that a lot of our listeners are unaware of your story, which I'm, I'm glad to kind of go through it uh, in detail. Yes, it was uh, – I was attacked uh, 32 years ago, and it's in uh, my book that I just uh, – written uh, called One of Us, A Biologist Walk Among Bears. I'll get my plug in early. <laughs> but, As a uh, trained professional. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I started out with uh, grizzly bear work, trying to uh, work on human-bear interactions, how people were affecting bears in uh, Yellowstone. And uh, I was uh, out with a graduate student uh, 
10 miles from the nearest road out the Indian Creek Trail near uh, Bighorn Pass. And uh, I uh, saw grizzly bears in the morning when we get up around 6 o'clock. And they were so far away that I suggested my student we take a big circle around uh, the bears and uh, bushwhack up a, a, a distant ridge, which was at 9,200 feet. Uh, the long and the short was that uh, he stopped for a nature call, and I went uh, over the ridge and stayed low to, so I wouldn't get elk barking when they saw me on the skyline. And I was uh, hunched over and moving swiftly so I wouldn't be up there on the skyline. And unfortunately, I charged a, a, a bear lying in its day bed, and it was a female with cubs. And... Uh, she didn't think much of that. In fact, she came at me like a freight train with her claws hitting the ground and uh, put me in the hospital for two months. She basically took off the side of my face, my nose and ears, and uh, scalped me. And uh, I ended up with shortly short of a 1,000 stitches in my head. But I had yeah. a magnificent rescue. I told them not to kill that bear. Uh, it was uh, something that I did in a surprise encounter uh, with a bad assumption, and uh, I went back within a couple of years. My student went to Yosemite to study uh, easy, easier-going bears, and he got a good master's thesis out of that. And uh, I got an opportunity, I think it was four or five years later, to go to Katmai National Park, uh, where now, upwards of 50 or 60 brown bears come down uh, onto salmon streams, and there are 500 to 600 people a day walking along them. Uh, when I started the research in 1983, uh, it was, of course, uh, a time of fewer interactions, but they still knew that the bears were being uh, bumped off the river, and, and uh, I designed a study to gather very detailed data about their uh, numbers on the river and people numbers through the day and through the week from dawn till dusk. We did sampling, a four-hour yes. sampling. Yeah, a lot to unpack there. <laughs> you rushed through some stuff I want to definitely cover. I mean, it's June 27, 1977, when the attack occurred, and you say 42 years now from that time, and um, obviously so much of your life has kind of been defined by by that moment, when you, you know, when you look back on that day, um, there's so much to to go through. But I thought the most amazing part, as I'm reading your story, and people can read it in one of us, um, and I was reading your stories as you've written, you're talking about the rescue. You know, a thousand sutures. You're basically scalped. You're you're losing a bunch of blood, and then how you were rescued that day. Can we go through that? You know, the sure. moment that. That your your uh, student Bruce found you and then and then called this in and, and kind sure. of how that all played out. Sure, it's very interesting to me. Yeah, the the short story. Uh, there's a whole chapter actually. The second chapter is the marvelous rescue I had. Uh, we had a park service radio, and my student uh, picked that up and uh, got onto uh, the um, main channel with the park service. They shut down the whole communication system just to uh, talk to us and. Uh, and uh, my student said that I was uh, badly enough injured. Well, he asked me how I was, and I, it occurred to me, <laughs> I gargled, I'm yeah. okay. Yes. I, I think I'm, at, I'm still alive. But then I thought, Bruce, tell him I'm dying because I really was uh, dying. I was bleeding out right there. And uh, they uh, launched a, uh, 
a small Nash-type helicopter. They found a pilot uh, downtown shopping. His name was Jim? Jim That's Thompson, yeah. yeah. Marvelous guy. Yeah. Uh, and he got in this uh, sort of rickety uh, uh, helicopter that was losing its supercharger, and he's coming in at 9,000 feet trying to pick up a guy in a windstorm, I mean, the air up there, and he couldn't land next to me. Uh, so anyway, he landed in a small valley next door, uh, and he brought with him Tom Black, who was the leader of uh, the rescue operations. And uh, Tom realized when he saw me with uh, Jim that uh, they needed some serious help there. So they called smoke jumpers from West Yellowstone uh, Smoke Jump uh, Base, and uh, a DC-3 launched uh, from there with... Uh, Eight smoke jumpers who dropped packages right on, almost hit me. Uh, and uh, the guys did a marvelous job of uh, getting me stabilized. And they took me down to uh, Lake Hospital, which was maybe 20 minutes by chopper. And uh, lo and behold, the University of Utah Medical Center had rotated in four Vietnam trauma surgeons who were just going up for a couple of weeks at a clinic. And so these guys had seen people blown apart by shrapnel and all kinds of nasty wounds. And uh, they further stabilized me. And uh, then the ambulance took me out to West Yellowstone Airport. And uh, Salt Lake had sent up a basically a flying operating room and got me down. And uh, they started working on me at 11 o'clock uh, at night and 11-hour and surgery, uh, closing all those wounds. And of course, then you got to beat the uh, infections. Infections, yeah. Infections. Your yeah, every time too. we talk about bear attacks, that's that's the thing that you try to talk about is when yeah. you have an open wound that was caused by an, an animal. They've got one filthy mouth. Yeah, yeah. And they can't, and you can't really just close that wound right back up. Without, Bingo. Without infection. Yeah, I was bacteria. I was just covered with tubes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's unbelievable. I can laugh now. It's sort of a gallows humor, but uh, it was nip and tuck. I. My temperature in the hospital kept going up around 104. You know, I could have clocked out right then. Right then, easily. Yeah. Do you ever you, do you think of moments during during? I'm sure what was kind of like a and very intense and very wild whirlwind to get out of there to get. You know, there's some serendipity involved with with your medical care too. Was there moments in there where you thought, you know, this is this is it for me? Like. You mean dying or, yeah, dying. or the end of the research? <laughs> either. either one. I mean, either yeah. or both. I, just, I, I just, uh, I'm interested in moments during that time. Yeah, that that's a good question. I, I, I don't dwell on that, and I don't like to talk publicly too much about it. But, uh, uh, you know, you get a TV producer stick a camera in your face, and Dr. Gilder, how'd you feel when you lost your face and you thought you were going to die and your family was going to be without a husband? And I thought... You know, F you. Uh, I don't obvious, answer those yeah. kind of things. But uh, I realized that I was uh, close to death. And one day in the hospital, I was watching the television, and I saw Turtle Walk across on the television screen. And I started to cry, and I couldn't stop crying. I knew I was going to live. So yeah, there you go. I'm choking up already <laughs> 42, 42 hours, <laughs> years later. 42 years later. Yeah. But yeah, we're not going to we're not gonna go. I just wanted to, yeah. you know, kind of— just understand a little bit of well, of what and it, that is. it's a reasonable question because then the next one is well, how the heck did you decide to go back and study yeah. even bigger bears? Exactly. You know? So exactly, yeah. And when you're, it's it's hard to. And again, we were talking before this. We, 
I know with this podcast and with our company here at Mediator, we, we're a media company and we know, we look at the numbers. We look at what people want to hear about. And when we sure. talk about bear attacks, more people listen, more people pay attention. Yeah. And we, you know, I'm not going to base our audience to say it's just a sensationalist part of it, but there is some oh, version of that intrigue for well, us. Well, you know, there's a lot of both ignorance and fear, and, and that's very normal. I don't say that to the pejorative toward people, but if we really want to fear something, uh, we ought to fear the automobile. It, uh, it kills and names more people, and, and uh, you can go on uh, YouTube or whatever and see got people's arms with their watch still on and the bears torn in pieces. You don't see that with automobiles. All that sort of stuff happens yeah. and uh, you don't get visuals of it. Actually, I, my wife, uh, as I was going elk hunting not too long, a couple of weeks ago, she said, are there going to be bears? Are you going to get attacked? Or there's been bear attacks recently. I said, I'm more, it's more dangerous for me to drive over to the hunting spot exactly. and hike up in there than it is to actually yeah. hunt there. And I, be I believe yeah. that solely and I don't let, my personal belief is I can't let that inherent there's danger in, inherent in everything sure and to, to sure. sensationalize one version of it because yeah. it seems a little bit more visceral a little bit more scary yeah it's just not intellectually honest for me so i just try to you sure. know, it's, you're playing the I odds mean, with everything only the sociologists could tell us why we're so obsessed with carnivores attacking people maybe it's a control thing but uh, look at the numbers of people have been dying from opioids uh, uh, 700 800 people yet two Grizzly bear attacks will get a hell of a lot more press yeah. than all these deaths of fine young people that uh, are on a drug that shouldn't be on the market. Yeah, yeah. no, I, that, that, those comparisons are they're pretty stark when you start to think about how, like you said, one we've we've had like I said four bear attacks in the Gravelly Mountain Range here in, in south of Bozeman recently, and and when yeah. I was traveling around prior to elk opening day we had more i had more conversations with hunters that i know in the industry and without the industry that uh about grizzly bears than i did about elk we, yeah, we weren't sure. talking about like what elk did you see well, what bull were you on we we're talking about are there grizzly and, bears in your area and the other thing about hunters is some of them uh, have the john wayne myth that if they've got a 357 magnum or something they'll be stopping that bear yeah. Believe me, you won't be stopping there with a pistol. Your arms will be jumping like like your heart. It'll be trying to get out of your chest. Yep. And unless you've had combat training, uh, if you really want to defend yourself with something like a short barrel shotgun or a pistol, go to a garbage dump and get one of your friends to roll a truck tire down at you from the hill. And you stop that truck tire with a, uh, with a pistol or a shotgun. Yeah. And, and if you can stand there... And stop that remaining cool. You'd be okay with killing a bear, but who wants to kill a bear? Yeah. What you do you, know, what do you think about bear spray? As, as I'm, a, I'm a believer. believer. I think the studies of it are, are sufficient. Uh, people always say, well, it doesn't work every time. Well, of course it doesn't work every time. Uh, skunks developed pretty good bear spray, and they still get eaten. So, yeah. you know, uh, but it's... It'll blind and make the bears choke and fill their lungs. And people say, oh, well, the wind will blow it back. No, it won't. It's got so much pressure with that gas, it'll just go out. Uh, you know, I've shown people how to use it lots of times. Yeah. I'm a believer. But, you know, the uh, unknown aspect of it is that when you stand there with your weapon, bear spray, your behavior is, tells that bear that you're not a chicken, if, if you don't have a bear spray, your instinct is to run, which I did. 
because you have to get some distance. Maybe you can collapse. Maybe you can wet your pants. But uh, if you're holding bear spray, you're standing facing the bear. And, of course, you have to believe it's going to work, uh, which it does. Yeah. Then the bear says, hell no, I was just wanting to chase you, but right. I, I don't want to fight you. Yeah, what and, you, yeah. When, what choice, like you said, what choice is when you're facing down a bear like that? There's a lot of things you can say you would do, but until you've been in that situation. Bing, I, bingo. I would like to say, you know, we were talking about this, uh, one of our uh, editors outside early today when we were thinking about you coming in. I was saying, like, carrying a pistol, we all think, oh, we'll do it. It's just a, I'd like to have both rather than just one. I was thinking of, and it's something I had never really considered, is that, I feel safer with a pistol in my hand than I do bear spray just innately. Just because sure. I, I feel the pistol's more powerful, so I'm probably going to reach for that for before I reach for bear spray. But to your point, man, I've I've shot three gun matches and different competitions where in practice I can hit, you know, I can hit a pretty, I can hit the ten ring with a pistol, and then when somebody's yeah. behind me timing me and there's 15 other people wa- watching and I've got to run up to a thing and shoot. There's any pressure applied, I am the most inaccurate person yeah. that you could ever. So to try to even compare that, which is you know tangibly comparable to sure. the moment of frenzy yep. when there's a bear you know coming down, I think is it's it's yeah. difficult to do. Well, you know, I was on the ground with bears a lot, and and we did some darting for collaring for the a lodge owner. I I don't do any collaring myself for my projects, but whenever I was out on the ground. Uh, I carried a, a shotgun, a pump uh, Mossberg with, uh, you know, slugs and uh, deer shot, uh, buckshot. And I, I figured I always carried bear spray, and bear spray was the first reach for me. I'm not a, uh, I'm a gun guy, but I'm not a, a hunter of big game. Uh, hey, here's a simple but very meaningful gift idea for your mom or grandparent who lives across the country. These are great, dude. These are really nice things to give to people. It's a digital picture frame from Aura. It's perfect for sharing pics of all the things they can't be there for, from family vacations to their grandkids' graduation. Let's say your mom comes out. You take a bunch of pictures of your mom with your kids or whatever. When she goes home, you can greet her at home with all those pictures you just took on the frame. And you can also keep her up to date by updating the frame from afar. It's all done online. It's a ton of fun. comes with unlimited storage and simple controls on the frame so you can upload as many photos as you want and mom can pick the perfect one. See why it was named the number one digital frame by Wirecutter, The Strategist, and Wired. Right now, you can save on the perfect gift that keeps on giving by visiting AuraFrames.com. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Make sure you use the promo code MEATEATER because for a limited time, you can get $20 off their best-selling frame with that code. The code being MEATEATER. AuraFrames.com, promo code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. At O'Reilly Auto Parts, they offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. Man, I'm always swinging through my uh, local O'Reilly Auto Parts to get stuff ranging from car parts and accessories to boat batteries. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. And if you're a do-it-yourselfer and need a specialty tool to finish the job, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and ask about their loaner tool program. Simply pay a refundable deposit 
and borrow the right tool, then get your deposit back when it's returned. That way you don't have to go buy some, you know, super expensive thing that you need like once every five years. Just borrow it and get your refund back. Need your windshield wipers replaced, a brake light fixed, or quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Lately, I've been telling you guys about land.com, the site that can help you find that little patch of ground to call your own where you can do all the hunting, fishing, and hanging out with family you want. Land can be a great investment. Getting your own piece of land is something that can both generate income over time and also generate a lot of memories for generations to come. It's an investment you get to use and enjoy and take care of while it works for you. And any good investor will tell you to start investing sooner than later. Well, they've got hundreds of thousands of rural listings from all across America. Land.com can help you find properties for hunting, fishing, a lake house, a hobby farm, or if you just want to start a rental business slash family compound as a way to better secure future generations. Land.com will also help connect you with the right agent that specializes in rural real estate. So enough dreaming about it. Land.com is the place to find and invest in your open space. I figure that I might have to use the shotgun to shoot a bear off my student. I want two backups. I want their spray, and then if the bear's got them down, I can walk up and plug them in the head or the neck or the shoulders or do whatever you can. You know, you're running on instinct there. They don't have bear shooting classes like they have sailboat <laughs> classes, <laughs> yeah, you know. Yeah. Yes, that would, yeah, that would be difficult. And I know FWP for some time, they had a – a trailer they would pull around that had a, a charging bear right. thing, and they would say, they, "Right, they that woman do... is speaking tonight." Yeah, uh, um, at at the uh, Lindley Center uh, right. just before I give the talk. There. Yeah, so like, a, and they would do bear spray training, and I I don't want to get the number wrong, but it was a very small percentage of people that could get the bear spray and effectively get it in the air before that bear, that charging fake bear. You're talking it milliseconds. Yeah, you know. it's, it's tough. And a bear decides to charge. Uh, standing facing it and and hoping to God uh, that it's a bluff charge and you can change your underwear later. Yeah, you know. Yeah. And I'm I, like I was telling you before I'm an East Coast kid. We just didn't. I never had to think about this hunting my entire life or even going outside for any reason. And now I've got a small son, three years old. Every basically every time I hunt in the national forest around here, any public lands, there are there is the chance. Even sometimes it's more remote than others. Other times sure. it's more elevated than others. But there always is a chance that I'm going to run into a grizzly bear. Yeah, always, and yep. it's a different and, feeling. And that's why we love the wilderness. Yeah, you exactly. take the bear out of it, it's not the same wilderness. Yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. That we say, I always say, like you, you, if you would remove, and we've done this as a as a nation, like remove the predator predators from the environment with the elk. The elk aren't elk anymore if they're not being preyed upon by these things that have sure. have chased them. So their elkness is derived so, somehow by their instincts that are right. elevated by Yeah, they the, evolved the with predator. wolves, cougars, whatever. So you know? the way we think of elk is, is very much sure. informed by the, the and predators. And you know, our pronghorn is faster than any carnivore. Right. It evolved with a, with a North American cheetah, yep. which was a lion that they found in sinkholes in... Uh, in Wyoming, which is really interesting. Uh, there were Thor pronghorn at, at one time. There's six, I forget which, some double horned and all that sort of stuff, but there's only one left. But 
that baby can run, you know, nothing yeah. can catch that. Unless, yeah, the, unless, the American pronghorn is a, a really interesting. Oh, I studied them really for two years. One. Yeah, I it, mean, was, it was wonderful. And Yellowstone, uh, mostly scent marking. It was sort of technical stuff, but I just loved going out watching pronghorn behavior. Yeah. Yeah. They are interesting. Well, one thing like during, you know, during the attack that you already mentioned, but I wanted to return to, um, in the hours after the attack, when when things were pretty dire, you wrote that you said that you asked uh, that the bear not be destroyed. That's the the quote, the words right. you used, that the bear not right. One of the rangers told me about how many bears they'd killed. And that I could I can remember the sort of anger welling up in me saying, uh, please don't do that. Don't track this bear. They knew it went downhill. Bloody footprints uh, were downhill. I, I never saw the day that, of course. I didn't see anything after that. Yeah. But I have uh, color slides of the rescue because the helicopter pilot grabbed my uh, 35 millimeter camera and took wow. pictures, which is crazy. Wow. Know? It's great. That is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I think the stories, as I was reading of your rescuers, were as interesting as anything, the people that they were. Well, and, like, isn't that thing. neat? Yeah. yeah. Jim Thompson did a wonderful job oh, describing okay. it. I quoted him completely uh, in the book because uh, uh, he talked about He'd been two tours in Vietnam, and that day he had more adrenaline pumping than on any any operation in Vietnam. So, uh, and he isn't a guy that exaggerates easily. Yeah, I mean that, that's what struck me. I mean, did you? So I think from the moment where you're near death and asking for this bear not to be destroyed, as is as is common occurrence when there's a bear attack, they'll go in and, yeah. and dispatch the bear if they can find it. Yeah. Go back to take well, back. especially if it's predatory, yes. it's different, you know. Yeah, in this a surprise case. encounter. But if you get a bear that uh, that has surprise encounters all the time, yeah. th- three strikes <laughs> Just happens to be in that bad place at the bad time, right? Yeah, take me back to um, you know, kind of the first time that you were interested in, in bears, maybe the first moment that you remember, or or something in your life that was very important that got you headed that direction. You know, I started working with bears really accidentally. I was a wildlife biologist for the province of Alberta, and bears were wrecking havoc with bee yards or apiaries up there. And uh, uh, young Barry Gilbert was supposed to come up with some kind of management uh, solution. So we did some uh, studies on 60 bee yards using electric fences and taste aversion conditioning where we used a chemical called lithium chloride trying to make the bear sick and then they'd be off eating honey. So uh, to be frank, I started out as a uh, biology major wanting to do fisheries work and I had a couple of summers there. I was out on sword fishing boats and that stuff. Then I... Uh, went to graduate school, and one places I applied was the University of Miami because they had shark studies. And I thought, oh, this guy's a, a junkie for <laughs> nasty animals. But I didn't get accepted there. I got accepted at Duke, and the professor wanted to study of deer behavior and a young mother-young relationships. And that's what I did my master's on uh, Communication in fallow deer, of all things, and then I did a really? PH. Really? Communication in fallow deer, really? Yeah. That's there was a herd from, uh, I think, the New York Zoo that uh, was so uh, averse to being near people that nobody could see them. So they gave them to my professor at Duke, and he had uh, enough money to build a, a mile enclosure and release them there. But what I did was... Uh, and just I'll shorten it because we're talking bears, but I studied yeah. the bonding between mother and young and 
baby deer and people. And I found out uh, that a deer that I sat with for six hours on its first day beside it had a changed behavior toward people five years later, and none of the other deer did. So it was an imprinting study, Imprint. basically. Yeah. yeah. But uh, then when I, you know, got my job uh, trying to save uh, bee yards from black bears in Alberta, I uh, I applied for a teaching job at Utah State, and uh, I'd done pronghorn work in Yellowstone. I thought I loved Yellowstone because. The animals are more natural than anywhere else. They're not hunted. You can approach them. And I, I looked at buck behavior and territorial behavior and all that sort of stuff. And then when I came back, uh, Yellowstone wanted a study of uh, bears and people on trails because they knew that either bears were being bumped off trails or people were running into too many of them, females and cubs, uh, like up Pelican Creek or something like that. And they, in fact... Uh, had a student, Kerry Gunther, did his master's on just that issue after I, a couple of years after I got involved, and he's now the uh, chief bear manager there. But he was up on the mountaintop <laughs> looking at bear people interactions from the two kilometers away. So uh, he, uh, he was uh, much safer, of course. I wanted to be as close as was safe and hear the bears. Bears do a lot of low-level chuffing, and when they uh, alarm their their uh, youngsters, when, they, when there's something dangerous, they go, <coughs> there's a throat click that goes on that you have to be quite a ways from the waterfalls and everything else to uh, to hear that. But that doesn't mean I want to, you know, sit on a chair next to <laughs> yeah. six bears and hear them talk. So, yeah, you were, you wanted to be, you felt like, is it, is it a part of your research that drew you to bears wanting to be close? That's what it sounds like, obviously. Yeah, but it was, uh, I think it'd be closer to problem solving. I had a feeling, knowing a lot about observational study of bears, usually, uh, using an anthropological approach, you go into the culture, you, you sit down. It's like they say, the uh, average Inuit family is a husband and wife and two children and an anthropologist. Uh, <laughs> You've got to be uh, in the culture to understand what's going on, you know. And the Craigheads studied bears first, uh, grizzlies, in Yellowstone, but they captured all their bears at dumps. So that was a dump culture. And uh, yeah. they didn't spend much time at all looking at their behavior. One of the students looked at so-called territorial behavior, but what he was really looking at is a... Uh, a bunch of fighting and and threats between bears that are trying to eat garbage. And you'll read that a lot. Like in Yellowstone 40, 50 years ago, that most of the the grizzly bear interactions were at like the at the dump. That's where most of the bears got their food. Yeah. yeah. The yeah. the growth rates of dump fed bears were much better than the ones that were feeding on cutthroat trout or uh, yeah. white bark hind seeds or any of the other things they eat. It's just a lot easier to get to, you know, one of the dumps, Trout Creek Dump, I read in the late 50s, had 51,000 cans of garbage come in. Compactors were just dumping all this stuff. And you know, in a park, you got potatoes and steak bones and no, yeah. pork chops and Why everything. Why wouldn't a bear habituate to going in there and get Bingo. a snack, man? That's, yeah. a, that's an easy one. Absolutely. So as you, as you, you know, develop through the years with bears, when did, did well, two questions is kind of the same. Did things change for you where you saw bears a certain way and then the proximity to bears and the time you spent kind of changed what they are because... I mean, you're now, I would say, people will say a noted authority on, like, people and bears. Right. Like, how do people and bears coexist? 
When so, did it did it change for you ever? Oh, absolutely. And uh, the time I can remember well, I, I wasn't totally uh, aware of how much difference there was. But uh, when I went to Katmai and Brooks River and saw bears walking up and down the trails with people uh, on the beaches with people, uh, anglers uh, fly casting in the middle of the river, bears going by, I said to myself, something really different is going on here. And I want to know what the difference is between mountain bears that aren't very well fed. Some of them, like Denali bears, uh, are grazing and eating insects for 18 hours a day. And these uh, salmon living bears, that uh, they can eat 23 salmon in an hour and a half. I counted one that did that. And then they go and uh, sleep for a good bit of the day. They've got all the calories yeah. they need. And But in order to uh, access the uh, salmon river, they have to be able to tolerate people. Well, they also have to tolerate other bears because these are bears that, aren't, uh, that are defensive of their turf. And uh, you can't have much turf when you're on a salmon stream. And then you ask the question, well, why don't bears fight more? And the answer, I think, is it isn't worth it. If you and I were kind of hungry and the uh, table here was covered with 16 steaks, uh, T-bone steaks, I'm not going to start fighting you for, you know, 15 of them. Both of us are going to sit down and start eating. And that's that's what bears do. It's And Did mountain bears, though, could be much more aggressive. And one of the questions... I ask now, and I have, haven't got the answer, is what does all the capturing and collaring bears do? It might be making man-haters, woman-haters, people-haters uh, out of some bears. Now, as an example of something that's you, well, yeah, you can make up all kinds of stories you want. You're probably against collaring, which I am, uh, especially in the national park now that we've done it for 50 years. But nobody's ever studied the change in behavior of bears as a result of uh, collaring them. Now, one example that's indicative to me was a bear studied by Bart Schleier for his master's thesis. Uh, bear 15 ended up killing Roger Ney in the Rainbow Creek campground west of West Yellowstone. That bear uh, had been captured 18 times ever since it was a cub, and it kept Schreier Schleier, Bart Schleier, up the tree for four hours. It really wanted to eat his lunch and his shorts and his ears. Shoes. Yeah. So to me, uh, you've got to make the linkage that if you keep capturing bears, and you've probably seen this on television, you open the gate for a culvert trap, and that bear wants to tear the truck and the trap and everything apart, and then it runs off when the guys blow the horn. So you change the relationship of bears to people. And one of in my talk tonight at the Lindley Center uh, will be about uh, contrasts in bears in different places. And, and they're just like anthropologists. You know, when the famous anthropologist uh, Franz uh, Boas went to the Arctic uh, in the 1800s to study the Inuit, he uh, thought he was just going to study people, you know, another primitive people that eat meat, totally. He found that their whole worldview was so different than the European one that he was familiar with. I think he was a German. And uh, that set him off on a, on a course in life to say, 
you know, anthropologists don't study people. Yeah, they they say, study different cultures in different places. Cultural anthropologists. I'm not talking about the ones that collect bones. You yeah. know, physical anthropologists. So, yeah, we we had just had uh, a gentleman named Dr. Valerius Geist on the podcast a couple episodes ago, and he's kind of the author of our North American Mile Conservation. And he talked. He studied wolves in North America as compared to wolves in Russia and Siberia which are heavily predatory on humans and very opportunistic when it comes to... Predatory on humans? Yeah. Uh, uh, I'd like to see the evidence of that because, you know, he's the got North some, American students... Uh, so uh, he was. So his studies, I won't speak for him, but yeah. he's, he has some books on some stories and of you know, specifically Russian wolves and their attacks sure. on humans that, that he's sure. written. But he was looking at, as much as you say, the comparison of wolf attacks and the violence with wolves in, you know, Eastern Europe... Eastern Europe and other places, why it's different in North America is there's less evidence of that, much, much, much less evidence oh, sure. of wolf, wolf attacks on humans here in North America. And how... Almost none. Yeah. And so he's looking into how these things coexist. Sure. So that's, it's, it's super interesting to me. And we had a lot of people, you know, want to disagree with his stance on wolves. And yeah. my point to them was, look, this guy is, is taking research from Germany from Siberia, right. from Russia, and comparing it to North America and shaping. Sure. So it's a very different worldview than just us and, in North America. And that America. goes to my point that you can't generalize. These wolves have different cultures, just like in Savo, we had man-eating lions right. that didn't do anything but capture Chinese railroad workers out of their sleeping cars and eat them. Yeah, we're, we're going to have David Quammen on hopefully soon. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And try to talk to him about Monster of God, his book. Uh -huh. uh, it's, that's just a very interesting thing to me. Like I said, I'm no uh, expert on predators or bear biologists, but there is, you know, when you talk about bears, they're not, it's not a monolith. It's not, sure. you know, and it's, it's but, illustrated but by your you, comparison. Uh, don't you think we stereotype them, though? I mean, if you uh, got a crowd of people... And uh, said, okay, I'm going to give you a word, and I want you to write a word down that uh, goes with it. And if you said grizzly bear, do you, what do you think people would write? Yeah, I mean, it goes both ways, right? It goes in the way, like, Paddington bear, he has, uh, sure. he wears shorts and goes to the mall. And we, you know, I once did a thing with... Yeah, but we're talking grizzly bears now, Yeah, eh? but, yeah I, mean, I think if you add the term grizzly, then you start to get into, you start to get into that. But yeah. there's, I, I think, yeah... It's clear like your view on bears and mine differ in a lot of ways. And I think this may be one of them because I I do think pragmatically there's two ends of that spectrum, right? I, I look at my three-year-old son and he's surrounded by fluffy, cuddly brown bears, grizzly sure. bears. They sell them at the Yellowstone, you know, yeah. park stores. And like we, sure. we, um, we personify and anthropomorphize bears in ways that I don't think we understand. But in the, in the same vein, we also sensationalize the more violent nature sure. of bears as well. So I think there's two sides of the coin. Well, at least. And there's a whole field of, <laughs> yeah, uh, of differences. Yeah. They're all a, over the map. It's, yeah. You know, I, I clarified it in my mind by saying uh, these are values. We're talking about values. Mm -hmm. I like that and, word. And you and I started talking about, well, let's have a hunting season on bald eagles. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a, there's no biological reason not to shoot eagles. There's a value reason. Sure. People love them. They're big. We don't eat them. And then they don't do any damage to us unless you're on a fish hatchery. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, but, unless you're, yeah. Unless you're on like the Prince of Wales Island and you see the like street buzzards over there. And it, yeah. it, again, like I think your value system but, is informed by your perspective. they're still beautiful and they're Absolutely. still marvelous to watch. I am not a bear lover. Uh, somebody asked me out of an audience a couple of days ago whether I love bears. Well, uh, I, I could get all technical and say, well, what do you mean by love? I mean, I, I love my uh, 
20-06 or something like this, or I love my golden retriever, or I love my sailboat. But uh, if you love theirs, uh, I, the bad kind of love is a sympathetic fallacy, yeah. if, uh, which Timothy Treadwell suffered from. Uh, I knew Tim. He called Did me you? for advice and never took it. Didn't but go well he, for him. Yeah. Well, he, he was a, a, one of those that thought if he was real nice to bears and loved them, they would love him back. Yeah. And most of them tolerated him. He was a wildlife uh, abuser in a way, approached them much more than he should have. And the park sure should have uh, uh, kicked his lily white ass out of there, actually. But uh, he uh, he ended up being killed by a bear yeah. late in the season that I think probably was a man heater and it had bad teeth and it was old. It had been captured. I'm not saying captured made him the killer, yeah. but uh, that bear was intent on eating people. Yeah, and I think the, the, this is how I feel about it. I wonder if you agree that it's incumbent upon us as humans to understand a bear, understand what it does. Right. Especially me as a hunter. I got to understand kind of not just that single bear, but what a bear is and how I can better interact and with it. And also its motivation at the time. And its motivations, right? You, you need to know. And so if I'm just like Timothy Treadwell, if I'm ignorant to the motivations of a bear and I want to you know, somehow apply my own emotional values to the bear – that's not doing the bear any justice because that sucker's going to kill you, and then we're going to kill it. It's a and wild, then you're both it's a, dead. It's a wild animal. Yeah, it's, it's a not, wild. It's not a little kid with a fur coat. Yeah, you know, as as is evidence. I think yeah. your words. I think to a lot of people in a lot of writings and things I've read yeah. about you and stuff you've written. I think your scars, one, stop people and make them listen, but two, are, are evidence of someone who can understand what a bear is so right, so holy. Yeah, and then and then step away from that and try to determine, you know, what a bear really means to you and then to us as a society and then to wildlife and conservation. Well, and, things like and that. it's it's a relationship, isn't it? Sure. Uh, we relate as humans to bears and we should be relating to Mother Earth uh, in a similar way. Respect, care for it, make it continue. I, I'm mm. uh, originally an Easterner, still am, I guess, because that's where I live. But I spent a lot of time in the West and I kept asking myself, now, all these people that, that consider themselves true Westerners, how could you possibly want to eliminate grizzly bears, which is so much a part of the West? Yeah. Who you wants know? to eliminate grizzly bears? We got a lot of people that want to eliminate grizzly bears? I think we do. You think so? Well, uh, look at Wyoming and Montana and Idaho had planned for the so-called recovery of the Yellowstone, greater Yellowstone ecosystem grizzly bear. Mm -hmm. They wanted to open a hunting season immediately. Yep. They were going to have... 23 permits sent out. They were. That means that the bear will never connect with any other. Uh, I know we're talking hunting permits. We're not talking ranchers that can now yeah, shoot yeah. them and make up their own story. You know, some sheep, uh, sheep herder, industrial sheep herder or ranchers that, uh, in my view, most of them have absolutely no interest in having grizzly bears around. And you can understand it. Grizzly yeah. bears are killing livestock. Yeah, I think that's, again, there's not a monolith there. I mean, you're looking at, like, when, when they studied bears in Yellowstone, there was a, the, the demographic area was, like, what, 25,000 acres. And they're looking at, okay, I think it's 674 bears we, this area can hold, right? And well, They think. That, they, that's, they think. That's different uh, the best I can, opinion. Yeah, the best I can do is say. Sure. Within the, I'm a staunch believer in the North American model, and I think we should talk about bald eagles and some things like that too but within our north american model 
who are trusting these state biologists. They're hired to do a job. Where there's a lot of times we disagree with them. A lot of times we agree with them. But they're telling me, okay, this this area can hold 674 bears. If within our model, that is, I think, if you look at the Endangered Species Act and all these other things, when that animal is recovered, hunting them to me is a positive thing, right? Because mm-hmm. I'm not looking at the killing of the individual. Okay, let, let me give you another uh, bit of uh, back of the envelope math. Uh, people love to talk about uh, the bears going from 300 after the Park Service killed so many of them, 123, mm-hmm. and they've gone to 600, 700 bears now. And, and uh, the North American model people will say, wow, and the recovery people, wow, they've doubled, 100% increase. But if I give you uh, 50,000 grizzly bears is the number that are estimated in North America, when they go from 300 to 600, that's going from 0.06 to mm-hmm. 1.2. And since when is 1.2 of the original population recovery? Let's hunt them and kill them. Well, you're looking at, but you're looking at the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. So the bear population within that ecosystem does have a carrying capacity. There has to be. But we have other habitat in Idaho and Montana sure. where bears would uh, go and not be eating cows and sure. all that sort of stuff. Sure. But when you open a hunt that is on the border of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, you drop the gate on all the movements of those bears. Not only that, some jerkwater poacher can say, oh, I was attacked uh, and I shot the bear. There, there yeah. are no witnesses, eh? The that's bear, a, bear that's a reductive way to them. think about it, right? Like, I yeah. don't think about hunters and poachers certainly different things altogether. Sure. Um, just well, like, I, I came to be interviewed you with you, not to argue with you. Sure, we're not, I'm giving no, you my is, point of view. This is the, and, I don't uh, want to argue with you either. I, I want to. Well, you seem to be, so uh, I'm just, I'm let's not, be honest about it. I'm not here to argue with you at all. Okay. At all. Uh, this is not the way that we approach these things, but yeah. I, I do want. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to avoid it because it's because we don't agree. I mean, sure. I I I think you're here because. But but they're... you are a believer and biased for the North American model. You're yeah. not just a journalist right now. Well, I, th- I I just tell you I believe in the North American model, but I right. think that I that's think that's a value of yours. Yeah, for that sure. May not be mine. So for sure, but I think that's a... an interesting way to go about this conversation. Okay. We have differing values. Where can we come and find? Middle ground because I think that's an important yeah. thing to do, especially when it comes to an animal as important as a grizzly bear. Because yeah. where we can find middle ground is I don't, I don't devalue to hunt a grizzly bear. And I already told you, or yeah. maybe not on on maybe before we hit record, but I'm not a I don't hunt grizzly bears. If somebody handed me a tag, I no, probably I know, would but, but stick you it know, in my pocket. Ungulate but, hunters, uh, elk and deer. Mm-hmm. I know uh, Val Geist quite well, and sure. he's one of the guys that's pumped out as an academic the North American model. Mm-hmm. He really doesn't like carnivores. He's never studied uh, bear viewing. I was, uh, I was uh, on sabbatical for six months with Val Geist in his uh, university. Hmm. He gave me some room. He never asked me any questions about bears or anything. And you know, That's uh, unfortunate. Let, me, uh, let me tell you about hunters. Uh, it isn't about bear hunters that I disagree with. It's hunters that believe that bears and cougars are taking their ungulates, their elk, mm. their deer, and in, in uh, Alaska, caribou. Now, if we start managing uh, from state and federal uh, fish and game units, if we start managing uh, pronghorn, deer, elk, you name it, mm-hmm. uh, we're game ranching if we kill all the predators. Oh, sure. So, I, yeah, any hunter any hunter would sit at this table and, and argue that predators need to be killed 
so they can go hunting. That's not a, that's not part of I, what I think the core hunting. Well, community Colorado believes. Fish and Game just did that. They they invited uh, Wildlife Services. You know the gopher chokers that mm-hmm. work for the federal government. Uh, they want uh, to kill cougars and black bears because they believe that they're knocking down the muley mule deer population. There's no evidence that they're doing that, but it's quite a popular program, presumably. And the government, if you were a Coloradan and I were, our tax money will be paid for to kill cougars and black bears. So that's a uh, a position that isn't science-based. It's based on, if you like, greed of hunters. They, they think every... Hmm. Well, I, I won't tell you what hunters think, but yeah, I mean, there's a belief that when a cougar kills a deer, that's a deer that you and me can't put in our freezer. I've, I've been in the hunting industry for 12 or 13 years. I've never heard that. Never. I, and I, well, I, that's, that's what uh, Colorado and, and Anchorage, uh, sorry, Alaska is doing it. The Florida game uh, has that as a policy. Now, it comes not from tree huggers. It comes from hunters. They don't want to lose caribou. There's older hunting going on. They don't want to lose caribou, moose, uh, whatever other ungulates, bighorn sheep, to any carnivore. Hmm. Because the board of game is uh, is allowing hunters to kill bears uh, in the den with cubs. In Alaska? In Alaska. That's That's policy now. Are you sure about that? Because I know that well, there was two. Well, I wouldn't two, say it if I wasn't sure. There was I two, only know what I read. Well, uh, there was two hunters that did that, and they were prosecuted. How long ago? Oh, within a year. So I don't have I don't have those game laws in front of me, but I'm well. I'm positive. I know a bunch of uh, their biologists, and uh, one of them was a lead researcher uh, who's now living in Montana, and uh, he 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 argued with me. He says the the uh, Government tells us to manage carnivores for the minimum number, and they open up uh, killing brown bears, and five or six hundred are killed uh, in Alaska every year. And part of the goal is to reduce the number. And they, other people, they've had shooting wolves from uh, aircraft. You know, you well, know that heard. whole story. They have that. Well, that doesn't that doesn't come from uh, some. Uh, accountant in uh, Anchorage, you know, that comes from pressure by the hunters that want, just like commercial fishermen don't want uh, individuals netting so damn many king salmon. They want to net them all. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I don't agree with that at all. That's fine. That's fine. I think that's a pretty bombastic statement about all hunters this or that. I I didn't say all hunters. I'm talking about policy. I'm talking about policy. I'm talking about hunter motivation. Now, if you don't believe that that government policy, politicians aren't listening to the people on the land that want to do these things, politicians... Of course they are. Yeah, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that like, if you look at the way our model of conservation works, hunters... $100, $100, Pittman-Robertson dollars, paid for a lot of, of grizzly bear studies and a lot of sure. grizzly bear uh, projects within the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Oh, sure. and it, it does that in Alaska. My so tax the, dollar does, too. It pays if you buy, for If you salary. buy a rifle. Uh, 
Pittman, in the Pittman Robertson. But yeah, I, think that, I, I, think I buy fishing uh, licenses all the time, right. 50 bucks, and I don't catch a salmon, but I, I don't object well, I don't think to that's, that. I don't think that's generally the argument I would make anyway, but I think that there's there's some things that are intertwined there that you can't just say. Yeah, we're not going to solve it in, a, in an hour. No, no, and I think it's it's still a fine, like I would just say, I flatly disagree with saying that hunters are driving policy to have less grizzly bears. Every hunter I've had in this room on this podcast doesn't matter where they're from. I didn't Alaska, say Colorado. all hunters. I'm, I'm, Even I some. Put, I want to put ranchers in there too. You don't believe there are some hunters that would like to have fewer carnivores eating deer and elk? Oh, I'm sure, but I don't think that's driving policy, and I don't think that's the prevailing feeling. Fine. Ask the sociologists. They'll tell you. I, 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 I mean, don't, we need studies of just those questions. I would like to see that. And, I, and yeah, I, like I said, I, I'm would not, too. I wouldn't I would presume too. to say that that the hunter is the is every single hunter in every single state and all these policies um were the great conservationists we have a lot of flaws in our in our community and trophy hunting and you bear sound, hunting you sound defensive to me that's mm. fine in what way well you're you're attacking what i say about hunter motivation you're saying all oh, son or some rogue or some guy does this I taught wildlife management, eh? so does that qualify me to sure, talk about here. policy? Absolutely. Well, Absolutely. I, I've studied where policy comes from. I tried to do studies in Utah uh, on black bears. The guys that controlled the money wouldn't let me do any studies. They took it to a private university, BYU, because I was considered to be anti-sheep, anti-cows in somewhere, and I suggested that there were some uh, trout streams and salmon streams in Utah, believe it or not, mm-hmm. where bears come in to feed on spawning salmon. The guy looked at me like I had rocks in my head that people would want to watch bears eat salmon. And Alaska is uh, as a gold mine right now. There are 60 companies in British Columbia alone that authored bear viewing uh, as part of their ecotourism. Watching bears and photographing bears is a land office business now. Mm -hmm. People don't want them. Something like 90% of the people polled in British Columbia were against bear hunting. Now, there's a surplus of bears that could be hunted according to the model. The hunting was ended. It became political, and they stopped the hunt. Yeah. So that's that's policy. That's a difficult situation, right? Because you can't, at the same time, you wouldn't want... If there are so like hunters out there that are driving policy based on less predators, if that is if that does exist and that is prevailing, you wouldn't want that to drive policy, and you wouldn't want folks in Vancouver to tell you know Central British Columbia, the folks near Quinell and some of these logging towns, where there there's you know cohabitation issues and there's hunting economy and there's all these things that are happening. You at the same way you wouldn't want somebody in Vancouver who's never seen a grizzly bear to vote on and have dominion over you know how bears are managed. In those areas, I think both of those things would be wrong. Those people in Vancouver are interested. Uh, bears are a public resource to be managed as mm-hmm. a as a public trust. Eh? It's yep. a heritage. I agree with that. It doesn't belong to anybody, and it belongs to everybody. You and yep. I have as much right to uh, have a, an opinion and vote on federal lands in Alaska, and that person in Vancouver has every right to say that bears should not be hunted. Well, we need to give them the right perspectives and the right information and say there, there, there can't be, you know, I've been, to, I've been to Vancouver, I've been to New York City. There's no way that someone in New York City could, could accurately 
understand the ecosystem of the greater Yellowstone. Well, what can't. you're saying to me is that they don't have the same values that you do. I would say that's true. Well, I would say that's very but you, true. Are you going to say that their values aren't legitimate and yours are? I would say that their perspectives aren't the same as somebody who's who's closer to bears. I think your story is, is very much about that. Your perspective yeah. is the okay. proximity to bears. A lot of people want to be close to a bear with an AK-47 if they had one. So yeah, uh, I, I don't. Uh, I think that's an unfortunate. I think it's an unfortunate view. And I, let me just say quickly, kind of how what I feel, just me personally, and I think probably this company, I would just maybe represent me. I feel, especially when you go back to the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem. Yeah. I, I feel when, and this is not me as a hunter dictating policy, I think it's the reverse based on our model of conservation, knowing that hunting to me is a sustainable use of a natural resource, which I think matches a little bit of what you're saying. Hey, here's a simple but very meaningful gift idea for your mom or grandparent who lives across the country. These are great, dude. These are really nice things to give to people. It's a digital picture frame from Aura. It's perfect for sharing pics of all the things they can't be there for, from family vacations to their grandkids' graduation. Let's say your mom comes out. You take a bunch of pictures of your mom with your kids or whatever. When she goes home, you can greet her at home with all those pictures you just took on the frame. And you can also keep her up to date by updating the frame from afar. It's all done online. It's a ton of fun. comes with unlimited storage and simple controls on the frame so you can upload as many photos as you want and mom can pick the perfect one. See why it was named the number one digital frame by Wirecutter, The Strategist, and Wired. Right now, you can save on the perfect gift that keeps on giving by visiting AuraFrames.com. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Make sure you use the promo code MEATEATER because for a limited time, you can get $20 off their best-selling frame with that code. The code being MEATEATER. AuraFrames.com, promo code MEATEATER. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. At O'Reilly Auto Parts, they offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. Man, I'm always swinging through my uh, local O'Reilly Auto Parts to get stuff ranging from car parts and accessories to boat batteries. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. And if you're a do-it-yourselfer and need a specialty tool to finish the job, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and ask about their loaner tool program. Simply pay a refundable deposit and borrow the right tool, then get your deposit back when it's returned. That way you don't have to go buy some you know super expensive thing that you need like once every five years. Just borrow it and get your refund back. Need your windshield wipers replaced, a brake light fixed, or quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash meat eater. Lately, I've been telling you guys about Land.com, the site that can help you find that little patch of ground to call your own where you can do all the hunting, fishing, and hanging out with family you want. Land can be a great investment. Getting your own piece of land is something that can both generate income over time and also generate a lot of memories for generations to come. It's an investment you get to use and enjoy and take care of while it works for you. And any good investor will tell you to start investing sooner than later. 
Well, they've got hundreds of thousands of rural listings from all across America. Land.com can help you find properties for hunting, fishing, a lake house, a hobby farm, or if you just want to start a rental business slash family compound as a way to better secure future generations. Land.com will also help connect you with the right agent that specializes in rural real estate. So enough dreaming about it. Land.com is the place to find and invest in your open space. And in the line that hunting is a sustainable use of natural resource, I'm saying within our model, wildlife is a public trust. We are, we are going to rely on state game officials and biologists who we fund through our dollars. Sure. That's the party line. To me, Yeah. I mean, just because it's the party line doesn't it's, make it wrong. I didn't say that. I said it's the party line. Right. And it's a, it's a statement of values. But it's a statement of values that are pe- by people that are pro-hunting. And as you and I covered mm-hmm. before, not to go overdo it, if we had the North American model, we'd be shooting eagles and sandhill cranes. Well, we can we can choose. We shoot sandhill cranes a lot. I mean, you can get. I think you can kill three. Well, they don't in Utah. I'm I'm not out of touch with that. They do sort here of in thing, Montana and was, Texas. And... The reason I say it is that it was an issue that got shot down. Pardon the pun. Uh, in Utah, because people didn't want mm-hmm. uh, cranes shot. It wasn't because there wasn't a surplus. I, I t- teach wildlife management, right? And I was sucked into the. North American model, just as I was sucked into the uh, multiple use model. Uh, we talk about multiple use of public lands, but when you look at what's going on, it's private interests like ranchers uh, and tender operators that are are the top dogs and wildlife and recreation and skiing and whatever are way down in the so-called multiple use. Uh, multiple uses give a little bit to everybody, but in actuality, the resource goes to the big money guys, Weyerhaeuser, uh, industrial ranchers, cheap uh, grazing fees. Uh, let's not get into that, but uh, multiple use, I have my dean who's uh, uh, used to see the uh, ecological world through the eyes of a cow. He was a Texan say that multiple use is a, is a bogus concept. And I don't want to see management of uh, wildlife just representing the interests of hunters, like the, sure. the North American model. That becomes game ranching well, eventually. Well, in, in, in the North American model, it, yeah. it says that, that hunting is a tool for conservation. It's not the other way around. Conservationists are not a tool for hunters. Um, and that's, that's how I believe. That's what I believe. I believe that hunting has benefited not only has benefited not only deer, but birds, well, and sure. elk, and it's benefited well, we a lot of things. just about eliminated elk. <coughs> and, and we brought uh, them back it, through the North American yes. model. No, no, no. Uh, no? They were, it was brought back by conservationists in New York City or, uh, yeah. initially, yep. and then they, the states asked for them to be shipped all over the United States. We yeah. had to reintroduce them we all. Did, we did that with wild over. turkeys. That was market hunting. Well, that wasn't hunting. That was the, the mass killing of something for market, which, which oh, sure. within the North American model is yeah, guarded against. Yeah, I know all that. That's, that's history. Let's not go there. Yeah, uh, but, and I think that— you're, I, you're making out the model like it's some, some kind of value system that somehow oh, it's not, is, is close to heaven. It's not perfect. And there's, and there's a lot of things yeah. in the modern sense that we could do to well, change it. Well, let's just leave it that it's a highly debatable model. It isn't. Yeah. It isn't all. Oh, I'm sure. All I'm, great. No, know? I don't think it's all yeah. great. I think there's a lot of things, and I think, yeah. you know, large charismatic predators are are one of the things that needs to be addressed within the greater conversation. And that's, you know, and that's why I, I, like I kind of resent you uh, 
asking me to come in here and talk about grizzly bears. And all I've got in a lot of ways is a goddamn lecture about the North American model and how biased I am. So let's wrap this up. I've, I've, uh, I've spent my time, you know, you guys aren't even giving me a baseball cap for coming in here. And now you're foisting your view over the radio uh, about the North American model. Well, we can continue. I'm a grizzly bear biologist. I know, we can continue. Ask me about my goddamn book. We can continue talking about grizzly bears in your book. I wanted to, I, to I don't, get you. I don't want to continue. Are you sure? I, yes, I, I think I'm, I've I'm said sorry much. that it's. I'm sorry that it's contentious. I didn't. It was not meant to be that way. Well, you don't know how you behave. Then I've well, never had somebody ask me to come in, ask me about my 45 years of research, and uh, give me the kind of defense you're giving me about big game hunting. And you're acting like I've got some kind of. Uh, left-wing weirdo view. I'm not, not at all. Well, not that's the way I feel. I can only I'm sorry. tell you. Listen, I'm, I, I can only tell you the way I feel. Listen, okay. I know. You I can know. defend yourself. You I'm can say even, whatever like. You can chop this whole thing up and. and I'm not going to chop it up at all. It. We don't need to air it if you don't like. We can. We I can didn't totally. Say that. There you go. Putting some words in my mouth. I. I'm, I don't want you not to air it. I want good things to be done for bears, grizzly bears. And I well, let's talk about that. Let's let's talk about what you want to do for grizzly bears. And that's all we had. I, I, I have I, questions I, I here. I pointed that, out. I pointed out how going from three hundred to six hundred and fifty is not recovery, in my view. Okay, it's not recovery. Okay, uh, you can't can make leave. the case genetically. If we're talking about uh, whales in the North Atlantic, any species you want to pick, sperm whales, whatever. 3,000 is about the number for genetically minimum numbers of the animals to continue on forever. Uh, we have 50,000 grizzly bears, and somehow a 1% increase in a small number, it's easy to double a small number, right? Yeah. Uh, if I, you had $2 and I gave you $2, boy, you just got 100% richer. That's uh, that's balderdash. So okay. well, anyway, I'm I'm a little we'll heated up. So. I understand. I understand. I, I don't want. And listen, I did not intend for it to get heated. I did not intend for for that to be the situation. You've given your time here, and I respect that. I'm not in any way trying to push my views on you, or and, and vice versa. I think. Maybe we can close by You're these. You're debating. No, you will yeah, admit sure. you're debating. Oh, me. sure. When uh, I well, feel. Well, I, I want to talk about grizzly bears let's, let's and what I know. So let's do that. I didn't that. come in here for a debate. That's fine. I, I'll get hate mail, I'm sure. And no, I don't. People listen. will write me about my book and call me all kinds of names. Great. But I want to see your evidence. I want to know what your experience is. Because I spent my life and almost gave my life for let's, uh, grizzly bears. Let's talk about it. I, I, would, I would like to talk about that. Let's move on from where time. we disagree and talk about your time with bears and your philosophies and cohabitation and those things. So this is absolutely what I want to talk about. And again, I will say, I apologize that, that this went away, that you're not, Fine. that you don't so like. I accept your apology. It's not a, okay. it's not a big deal. I, I don't, what, what I did not mean for that to happen. I did not. I did not come here to have some debate. In fact, I read a lot about you and was very excited just to have this conversation about cohabitation and what you think. So if we can get to that, I'd love to. But if, if well, you'd like I'm, to end now. I'm trying to, to uh, make the case uh, that you can't generalize the grizzly bears. There's a tendency even among PhD bear researchers to uh, stereotype their view of bears. If you call her bears, you've captured them, abused them. 
and you haven't watched them. Uh, so I'm uh, uh, an animal behaviorist who uses an anthropological approach, right? And what I've seen now, and I find marvelous, is that uh, we can see grizzly bears as different cultures. They learn things and pass them on to their young. In Alaska, they swim out to islands some as far as 30 miles to raid seabird nests. And that's a trait, a cultural trait that they've learned. And we can go uh, <laughs> to Yellowstone and see a, in the 50s a garbage dump there that came in there. The Craigheads called them an eco-center and related it to salmon streams. So I think that's uh, breaking out of the ignorant model that all bears are pretty much the same, unpredictable, going to eat your mama uh, kind of thing. And people generate a lot of fear. But if we think of them as a sentient animal like chimpanzees or wolves, mm -hmm. we realize that they have a social life. They have mother-young relationships. Uh, wolves are, are violent killers. If you ever watch a, a bear or a wolf, uh, take on a baby elk. They, they eat it alive. They just pull big chunks off it and eat it while it's trying to breathe and escape. So I don't, uh, I know the different sides of bears, but uh, they are a different culture. We have sure. another, you know, again, the anthropological one, you wouldn't say, oh, I'm an anthropologist. I study people. People will say, well, what tribes do you study? Because, uh, and I could say any kind. I could say, well, I study gangs in Chicago. It's a different tribe than the uh, Mundugamore or uh, <laughs> uh, the Samoans or something like that. Well, I think so. your, your point is something that I – that's something worth looking into because bears at the same time are like can be – and we've already kind of covered this through the – like the personification of bears versus sure. the violence that – bears are – very social, very a lot of times gregarious, and then you spend a lot of times, sure. I'm sure, in close proximity to bears where they're doing things that thousands are, of hours. People love to watch bears. I love to watch sure. bears. When I see a bear in Yellowstone, I stop and get out yeah. and get the binos. That but I you watch. know, in the end, we stereotype them through, yeah. well, as I mentioned, the PhDs yeah. that only do sure. computer uh, population analysis don't know bears. Mm -hmm. They know uh, numbers of bears. And if they've captured them, they've dealt with a angry captured bear that would love to get at them and chew their face off. Yeah. So that is there a way from a, like a biology standpoint, and you know, from your standpoint, to kind of meld those two things together, you know, like the data and the and and all the things that are collected, and then the feeling of this is what a bear is, because I think what. I think what you're saying is like there's a bearness. Bears are they're a certain way when you're around them, and you must well, understand the bear. Is there yeah. a way to kind of meld those two things together and effectively? Well, if you if you're dealing with open-minded people, they're willing to uh, consider another view of theirs rather than just recover them. So let's play the numbers game. So let's get to 650 and then drop the protection. I I I don't think we should drop the protection, but. Uh, it's about open-mindedness, sure. and uh, sure. I don't I don't see any way that uh, people are going to change. I mean, I read uh, population literature. I appreciate the effort that those guys go to. I've been involved in collaring programs with uh, with satellite collars because I thought the data would stop some timber operations that were hurting bears. I don't believe that anymore. 
I don't believe that our science is giving us better management all the time because politicians come in for the wealthy, the corporations, timber companies, mining, oil and gas, and they say, screw the greater sage grouse. We used to have millions of them. We mm -hmm. don't even have 10 square miles where there's nothing that can come in on sage grouse. Yeah, to me, sage grouse is my favorite bird. I studied them at a distance. And in Utah, I used to go in the early morning down to Hardware Ranch, which was an elk ranch, and uh, take pictures of them and watch them. They're just fabulous birds. Oh, yeah. But they don't get the time of day anymore. Well, this brand, Meat Eater, and, and um, Steve Rinell, the guy that founded it, we've he's been very active. Me less so. I wish I had I understood that issue more um, with the governor, former governors of Wyoming, Governor Mead, and things like that, of of yeah. making sure that this that that sagebrush sea, that greater um, sage grouse habitat, has been has been looked after and maintained. That's a tough thing to do in a state like Wyoming. So that's, it's that's a been, tough everywhere because the ranchers are controlling the politics, yeah. Yeah. and they put cows on all our our leased land, which is subsidized grazing. And yeah. uh, that'll be another program you can invite me back for. <laughs> At least we'd have a laugh about it. Uh, I, well, it's it's uh, so uh, bizarre uh, what uh, ranchers get away with. Dollar uh, thirty nine uh, per animal unit month. That means they can graze an animal on your land and my land for a month for a dollar and a half or less, and it hasn't changed in twenty five thirty hmm. years. That's a giveaway to ranchers. That's why people like George Worthner and Mountain Journal, uh, your local journal here uh, with editor Todd Wilkinson, do such a nice job because he's trying to educate people about what's actually going on. But if you're in love with the uh, independent ranchers being the lifeblood of the West, uh, you're in favor of a lot of stuff that's harming the environment. We've had 200 years of sheep grazing and cattle grazing since the Mormons first came to Utah, for example, and they ran sheep everywhere until erosion uh, pulled the mountains down and the Forest Service came in and took it over. <coughs> and so we don't, right now, we don't have uh, a square mile of land that hasn't been grazed somehow. So we don't even know how lush the West was. Hmm. That's what's incredible. Yeah, and you know what they call that? The ecologists call that the shifting baseline. Yeah, I've heard of that theory. Yeah. Yeah, I think— It's um, a reality. It is, it, it's not really a—well, I guess it's a theory it's a because theory. it works so often. <laughs> yeah. I, is there—like um, I said, I've, I've, this reminds me of like some, some of the conversations I had when I went to talk to you know, vegan philosophers and, and trying to like work through some of the— things like some of the real broad things where we disagree and get get down to that um and i think yeah i mean you pointed out how you feel certain groups you know diverge when it comes to conservation policy and biology sure. and when it comes to their motivations for whatever they do i feel i feel real strongly about the group we have here at meat eater and and, and this the audience of this podcast there's a lot of people that care about there being more bears and, the, and the, a lot of those people, one, are wrestling with what to do, hunt bears or not. Is this a thing that is within sure. our value system? So there's a lot of that that I've seen. But then there's also a lot of like trusting in uh, the model. But it, all of that is kind of based on the value system of I'd like there to be more bears. I think that this thing that we've come up with 
would allow there to be more bears. And I think, obviously, from your standpoint, you you want there to be more bears too. And so, but but you know, let me give you an example. You're talking about maybe we can come together on something. I mm-hmm. have a colleague at Utah State who had a master's thesis student who was going to ask, "What do Utahns think about?" wolves coming into Utah, mm-hmm. he almost lost his job because he was going to ask the question. I talked to him yesterday and the day before. Now, that is a form of political censure, even about a question. Sure. I mean, that sort of thing drives me goddamn nuts. Me too. Because me too. Here, here is a belief system that you can't even ask a question about a controversial issue. Why do you think it is with wolves and bears that that is? I mean, you're obviously, you know, like you're passionate about it. I'm like I said, I'm not a, I haven't spent as much time I'm, with it as you, but I, I'm passionate, I'm passionate about it too. But I'm as objective as I can in the data and the science, and that's what I've done with my students. Mm-hmm. I don't say uh, your thesis will be much better if you make a lot of statements about how nice and uh, more theirs would be. No so. You say what your results are and the implications of them for management, right? Yeah, so that's the way we operate. Yeah, we should talk about. And I was doing a little bit of reading. I, I will admit, I didn't get as far enough as I wanted into this. Like your your thoughts on how expanded bear populations, expanded bear habitat, expanded bear protections would work. I think that's an important thing to to cover. We haven't covered that. We should. Sure. So, run us through kind of your philosophies when it comes to that. Well, we have uh, protections as the Europeans have for keeping wolves uh, away from. Cattle, for example, there are breeds of dogs, mountain dogs, that are raised with sheep and uh, basically stop predation. But, you know, the French and the Spanish are still fighting over brown bears. They're bringing them back in three mm-hmm. or four areas. And uh, in Sweden, they're expanding from uh, into Norway. And the Norwegians don't like them at all because they raise a lot of sheep. They also kill whales in large numbers. Uh, I think it's always going to be contentious because partly it's, it still goes back to values. People don't like to believe that, but they, uh, the United States has tremendous differences of opinion. You have a oh, president sure. right now whose view of women is uh, pretty atrocious, but he is pretty damn popular. He didn't win the vote in the United States, but he has a lot of people backing him. I don't know what they think he's going to bring to the middle class because he's the richest uh, uh, con man we've ever seen in the presidential chair, I think. Uh, so it's it's about values, and uh, people don't seem to want to shift that much. I'm, I'm uh, to get on the, the gun issue, uh, the United States, to me, uh, I was born in Canada, raised to, went through university and then went to the States, and the American government paid for much of my education uh, through the Sputnik era. But uh, the United States is a gun culture through and through, and the rest of the countries of the world can't understand this uh, Second Amendment, which is such a, so abused, uh, regulated militias. Uh, so you've got values there that people won't bend on. There are more guns than people in the United States. Canada, I, I wanted to get a shotgun. I've handled shotguns. I've owned 357 Magnum rifles. I'm certified by the Park Service to handle weapons. I couldn't 
buy a gun in Canada until I spent a weekend learning how to handle guns and then paying $100 uh, for a permit to be able to even have a shotgun. So uh, there, there's two countries that are very similar. We have much in common. Uh, and I like the American system of government much more than the Canadian, <laughs> by and large, because you can sue the ass off uh, people if they don't, if the uh, EPA doesn't do what it's supposed to do. We can't sue or, uh, organizations in a parliamentary system. Uh, that's my personal grief. <laughs> but getting back to values, uh, people are so intent on guns being for protection. Bear spray is for protection. Get a knife for protection. You don't need a AK-47 or a Kalishnikov to uh, defend yourself. How many people in America use a weapon to defend their, for their family? Just get back to bears. <laughs> should probably go back to bears. Yeah, that's another uh, program. That is another program. I think that... Um, the value system is an interesting is an interesting thing to say, and, and it's the I, basis of all our policy. Yeah, and I think it's a, and there's some cultural things with, that we've already addressed, but I think sure. in, a, in a value system way, um, I think maybe I'm a little more positive about it uh, because I think that one of the great redeeming values I think of all North America that that's not the case in the continent of Africa. It's questionable in Europe in some ways just because they're so split up and the countries are so small. Um, in North America, especially in the United States, that we have this value where everyone, most everyone that you come in contact with, if you say, like, do you want more wildlife? Do you want more places to go? Most people would raise their hand and say yes, regardless of if they're an urbanite or if they live in Montana or whatever. As we talked about earlier, their perspectives are different because they live in different places and they come to those values. You're quite a patriot, but, you know, if you look at uh, people wanting more national parks when they bring a park into an area... What do you think the locals want? No is the answer. And they just took bear's ears and chopped it in half, eh, in Utah. Mm -hmm. uh, it turns out if you do an economic analysis, every county that had a national park near it, and this is true in Alaska for huge, you and I own uh, a huge amount. I'm an American citizen, by the way, naturalized. Mm -hmm. We own a lot of public land in Alaska. And it is making Alaska a bundle. Oh, yeah. A bundle. Yet, if you asked Alaskans, what do you think of the Park Service coming in and that guy, Jimmy Carter, that tobacco guy, uh, <laughs> setting aside a lot of land, they would tell you that keep the hell, keep yeah. them the hell out. We Alaskans well, are, no, I, we know how to look after our land. Do you recognize that and agree that that's oh, I reasonable? Sit, I sit on the board of a group that's called the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. Yeah. And we're very much a, we're a pro-public lands, pro-federal control of those sure, public lands. I, I follow them because they're anti-ATV because yeah. ATVs and snowmobiles are getting up into the yep. high country. Yeah. So Do a program on uh, mountain bikes too. We were, we've been talking a lot about <laughs> e-bikes. Yeah. We've been talking a lot about e-bikes here lately too. Sure. But I think I sit on the board of that uh, of that group and I sit on that board because I think the pro there's a, a there's a huge movement. The public land movement within hunting is huge. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the opinions that you reference I think are are old. I think the new version of, of the American hunting mindset and the American hunting value system includes federally controlled public lands that are managed for wildlife. Um, Alaska... All wildlife or just some wildlife? I hope all wildlife. Well, we that's have not an, always been the we case. We have in Utah but, but we are a big talking. group that 
are out for some wildlife. Well, we they're anti carnivore. We've they have no use for songbirds. You know, uh, but, and it's total. They're political as hell too. I forget their name. I probably <laughs> got a case of denial going on. Well, but I think, like I said, you got a lot of strong opinions, man. I dig it. Um, but I think. In general, I've, I believe that the hunting, the sustainable hunting movement that I'm a part of and that's that there's hundreds of thousands of people that follow this and listen to this and I'm are trying to understand it, I are trying to, to, are trying I to, do, to teach it. Are trying to understand it, it better. I taught it as a positive value. Yeah. When it's done right, it beats market hunting, it yep. beats poaching, it beats... And that's what we're talking about. Everything. I think we could do yeah. every we could beat holes in everything and, and be anti yeah. this or anti that, but that's, yeah. that's, what, that's what I believe is, is can be the future will be the future and it's something that we can all agree on and we can get into like yeah. far right wing this far left wing that but but I don't well, I'd like, I just, I, I'd I like you to uh, I'd like you to sometime get only women wildlife managers to come in because be there's a cultural shift going on there I I was asked to uh, be a consultant on their viewing policy for the province I was paid to uh Re, re, to review their draft report on bear viewing. Big deal in British Columbia. Mm -hmm. uh, British Columbia has a, a male-dominated hunter mentality in the, in the uh, fishing game that uh, is hard to describe. But the people that wrote the bear viewing were bright young women who weren't hunters. Uh, I, I don't know whether they're hunters or not. I'm, I'm not against hunting. It, you and I could, I'd love to shoot a moose and uh, take it home. But uh, <laughs> I, uh, I really appreciated the difference that these women brought. Sure, man. Because they didn't have the culture that bears are not anything as good as a caribou or a moose <laughs> on and on it goes. You know what I'm saying? Oh, no, man. And I think. Um, they can be objective a lot easier than a bunch of jocks well, like us. And I think know? in general, like, I don't, I don't look at people. Yeah, they would say, I try not to look people, just look at it. Oh, your gender makes you different or your color makes you different. Like, But you're right, though, in the way that our audience is 95% male. The hunting culture has predominantly been male. Sure. Now, how we fix that, well, there's, that's arguable. Well, it needs We need more and better perspectives. That's the only way to do this the right I'm way. I'm just talking diversity, you know, yeah. instead of single yeah. single thinking that, that used to be of course. Uh, drove all my friends who were male by and large. Nuts because of the uh, hunting culture that had invaded the management of all our wildlife, not mm -hmm. just some wildlife, but all of it. So I think that's changing, and I'm very positive about I think that. It's, I think it's changing, too, and I think we've had lots of conversations. Like I said, we just talked to Val Geist, and, and he's yeah. got a, a, lot of, a lot of opinions that are— People would say, oh, that's negative predator, and then he'll slide a book across the table that has stories of, of Russian that has – he's got a book that he he wants to try to get us to publish that is just from Russia, stories of wolf sure. attacks on humans and, and some of the different things. And and a lot of people got that twisted around, I thought, because I, I said, look, this guy's just – and he did a lot of study comparing what's happening in North America to what's happening in yeah. Russia and trying to figure yeah. out – what what is driving the wolves to do what they do? Not kill them all, save them all. It because yeah. neither of those things I think can really be applied to what we're currently working on. But you know, it's, it's, really it's trying hard to gain to that find perspective. Good data, good information, data, whatever mm -hmm. on wolves killing people. The myths grow. I mean, overnight, you can't even get a person that's watched a car accident describe what's actually happening. And as far as writing a book about all the wolf 
attacks on humans, you could write a book on the men that killed their children uh, and write a book on going from country to country to see what fathers have uh, killed their children. And uh, turns out that uh, men that haven't fathered the children or stepfathers are the biggest group of people that kill their children. So there's some evolution going on here and some sociology that we're just starting to crack the surface. So I say that because you can say that wolves uh, kill people and there's all this data from Europe. Europe playing into the fear of wolves and the anti-wolf sentiment in North America because there, other than a couple of cases of rabies, there haven't been wolves. Wolves are the hardest animals to get to kill people. And any other idea, uh, you can say, well, you know, talking about grabbing women's crotches, that's just locker room talk, like Trump's wife said. I don't agree with that. <laughs> it yeah. isn't just locker room talk. It's a deplorable behavior. And I think some of the stuff about wolves is also deplorable. Well, I, I ran into it when I was in, in Berkeley talking to folks, they would bring up when we were talking about animal rights per se. They would bring up things like slavery and rape and like all these really what I would say like really far out analogies that kind of stop the conversation. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, listen, I, I and similar with these, you know, fathers and, and kids things, I I don't know where to do with that because I just I feel like it's far well, away. It's, a far I, I away bring analogy. it up because it's a stereotype, and there's a stereotype about the danger from wolves. Well, but the, you know, I, I don't know. Like I said, I'm not. I don't. Okay, you, speak for other guests. I'm, and I'm things just like that, saying but, it's a stereotype. Well, I'm sure there's a stereotype of wolves. There's, the, it's perpetuated by Hollywood. It's perpetuated but, in, in lots of ways. And I don't want to uh, increase the stereotype negative. But yeah, he, I, you told me about stuff I'd never heard anybody talk about. All oh, the studies in Europe and Asia and all this about wolves yeah. uh, killing people. Uh, never did, heard of it. I'm not never telling you that. To, I'm not telling you that to like perpetuate a stereotype. I'm telling you that because that's guy, what you. That's what the end of the result is. Don't what? sit there as a journalism and tell me that you bring up a particular issue, treated in a certain way, isn't isn't increasing a stereotype. Sorry, oh. I didn't mean to keep hitting your equipment here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't. I, Gilbert kept hitting the table and yeah. he knocked the microphone around. <laughs> He's throwing stuff at us. Yeah. Um, I think that. No, I'm not trying to perpetuate stereotypes. Yeah. I don't have. Okay. I, I don't have it. And I think you can say that you can say that I am, but I'm, well, I'm not. Well, journalists. I mean, look. I, listen, you we can't can, defend that journalists don't have much effect. I mean, uh, that's what your business <laughs> is. You're yeah. you're selling a product. Yeah. And unfortunately, a lot of newspapers, the yeah. more blood we used to say in civil rights. Uh, you ask the you say you're going to have a march on campus in favor of uh, integration. I'm talking North Carolina 20, 30 years ago. The, the news media would say, if you think there's going to be blood, call us. Right. What does that mean? I don't know. What do you think? Hmm. I try not to. Th I don't know, man. Uh, let's well, just, let, me just, let me just finish the statement. It's about if there's violence, we love it, we're going to carry it. On our, on our program. All right. Let's just end it there. Great. I guess I grew up on an older road. Woo! All right, guys. <laughs> that, was, that was interesting, right, Phil? 
Uh, yeah, I think you stopped it at about the right time. Yeah, I would say. Yeah, I don't like. I don't draw many lines, but <laughs> no, I let it probably let it go on way too long. I, I, I think it was it was worth the effort. I, I'd say I couldn't believe when he was out to leave. I thought you were just going to let him walk out, and I was expecting you, you kept you kept him in the room. And I, I mean, the interview went on for about an hour and twenty minutes. That's a solid interview. <laughs> <laughs> where about where it fell apart, where it nearly fell apart several times. Um, oh. So yeah, I thought it was. I thought you did a good job. Well, thanks, Phil. I appreciate that. Um, and I appreciate everybody sticking in and listening to that. That was It was one, again, uh, so, and thanks to Mr. Anthony Lucata for joining us, Meteor's Editor-in-Chief. Uh, it's one that we talked about a lot. I mean, it really drove, like, some some energy in the room when we were done. <laughs> like, it kind of set a buzz the office because our, our man, Barry, kind of came in and Lit a fire. Yeah, I, I left the room and I started walking around the office and I realized I, I had no purpose to where I was going. I was I just needed to kind of keep moving. It yeah. was it was bizarre. And I was yeah, I, <laughs> I was, was just getting was energy out. <laughs> plenty jittery after that. I mean yeah. it, was, it was it was a strange happenstance. It was not to be expected, but um hopefully it was an entertaining and somewhat informative version of the hunting collective, a different version of what you normally get. And so Thank you for listening. We won't get into any other big asks of you today. We'll let you just digest what you heard. I'm sure you'll have some comments. Hit me up on social media or the THC at TheMedia.com. Uh, happy to talk through it with you if it needs some catharsis after this one. So next week, back to the normal show. Right, Phil? Hopefully. I don't know. You, don't, you can't make any promises. Well, yeah, I can't make any promises. <laughs> I'm going to have a white claw. We'll see you next time. Bye. Stay here too long Cause I can't go a week without doing wrong Oh, without doing wrong Without doing wrong Oh, without doing wrong Drinking in heaven Clean and protect your firearms with Riptide Armory. Riptide Armory's products are military and professionally formulated and approved, featuring a groundbreaking graphene-infused ceramic coating that is safe for all surfaces, providing unmatched protection for any firearm. Discover a new standard in gun maintenance. Order your advanced cleaning kits today at RiptideArmory.com. Riptide Armory, relentless performance for your firearms. I've been telling you guys about Land.com to help you find a place to call your own and do all the hunting and fishing and hanging with the family that you want. While owning your own piece of land is something that can generate memories, I can speak to this personally because my family, we own a couple small, beautiful little backcountry parcels. It can also generate income in both the near and long term, like starting a rental business slash family compound that can benefit both this and future generations. Check out the hundreds of thousands of rural listings from across America. Enough dreaming about it. Land.com is the place to find and invest in your open space.